Genesis chapter 40 and 41 tonight. Genesis 40 and 41. Now, in Joseph's story, this this is okay. This is one of those I told Cheryl, mind blowers. Uh, what we're going to see tonight and what we're going to study. I, I'm amazed because there are greater hints and deeper parallels to our Lord Jesus than I had earlier even realized. We've looked at a few. We've talked about some of the ways that Joseph in his life is similar to Jesus. That he pictures or portrays or is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. And though the New Testament doesn't specifically refer to Joseph as a type of Jesus, the parallels are so stunning that it's kind of hard to believe otherwise Joseph was his father's beloved son in the same way that Jesus was God's beloved son in whom he was well pleased. Joseph was given his father's authority, the big sleeved coat. Same way Jesus had the full authority of his father, God. Joseph was concerned with his father's concern. He spoke his father's words. He did what his father was interested in having done. He shepherded his father's flock. All of these things picture and portray Jesus. But you could say that about a lot of people. You can say, well, yeah, there are people who just by the way they act, they, they are Jesus-like. So are you saying that Joseph is more than Jesus-like? Well, it gets a little more intense when we see Joseph hated by his brothers, his authority rejected just like Jesus. When we watch and see that Joseph was sold to Gentiles for 20 coins, and Jesus was sold to Gentiles for 30 coins, and you may ask, what's the difference? Why Jesus 30 and Joseph 20? And the only thing I can come up with is inflation. But Joseph overcame also great temptation. Genesis 39, which we talked about Sunday morning, we saw the temptation of Mrs. Potty Mouth, okay, Potiphar's wife. Uh, she goes after Joseph and she tries to lure him in, tries to get him to lie with her. And he won't do it and he puts her off. And she invites and he declines, and she lures and he leaves, and she attacks and he retreats. But ultimately, Mrs. Potiphar's lies about this innocent boy land him in prison. Like Jesus, Joseph overcame great temptation. But tonight we're going to find Joseph in prison. That's where we pick up in this continuing drama. But as we do so, I want to encourage you to watch tonight for deeper parallels to Jesus than we've seen before. We'll look at the historical story of Joseph, the interpreter of dreams, and what he does and how he interprets dreams tonight. And it's fantastic, and it's amazing. But the deeper underlying story, always the deeper underlying story in Scripture, is that of Jesus. Let's go to the Father one more time before we get to verse 1. Father, I just pray that your words would be clear to us tonight. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach instead of me and that you would get me out of the way and that you would speak clearly so that we can understand these things and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 40, beginning verse 1. Genesis 40, verse 1. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And in that one line we find out why Joseph had to go to prison. We understand that it wasn't because of Mrs. Potiphar and her lies. 
And it wasn't because of something that Joseph did. It was because God has a plan that is in motion. And God needed Joseph to be in this place at this time when the cupbearer and the baker come in. It's important for the vast plan of God, the larger plan of God, in which Joseph will be amazingly blessed. But for a time, Joseph's in prison, and here come the cupbearer and the baker. Verse 4 says the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Now we don't know what they did, the cupbearer and the baker. We don't know if they were co-conspirators or if their offenses were separate. All we know is the cupbearer and the baker got busted. Apparently the candlestick maker got off scot-free. But the cupbearer is a position that you need to understand. It's an important position. It's not just the guy who brings the wine to the king or to the pharaoh. He is the guy who was a close advisor, a trusted advisor. He had the ear of the king. He was trusted. But before we go on, listen, I want you to consider a fascinating parallel to Jesus. Here's Joseph in prison, cupbearer and baker. Joseph, between these two men. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53:12 that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. In Mark 15, 27 through 28, it says they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. You remember the story, two criminals hung up on two crosses on either side of Jesus. You've seen the pictures drawn and the emblems of three crosses. Oftentimes when people talk about the crucifixion, they picture three crosses. Jesus in the center, numbered with the transgressors, the two criminals on either side of him. It's interesting here. Because here you have a cupbearer and, and a baker, two guys who are busted alongside Joseph. It doesn't stop there, though. Watch this. Of the two criminals, one mocked Jesus. One mocked Jesus on the cross. Said, if you're the Lord, if you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. Come on, if you can really do it, come down off the cross and save us. The other criminal, you may recall, pleaded for mercy. Saying to the first criminal, don't you understand? We're guilty of these crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me today. When you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was savior to one of the criminals. He was judge to the other. The very crucifixion of Christ, his death was judgment. Is judgment as well as salvation. For to reject the cross is to reject the only thing that can save from judgment. To look at the cross of Christ and say, I don't need it, is to put yourself in the place of saying, I would rather go through judgment day myself. You understand, don't you, that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have already been judged. You've already had your judgment day. It has happened. Now there's another judgment that's coming for Christians, but it's not a judgment like we might think. The one I feared as a child, where everybody's lined up, and the sins are being called out, and you just hope that the Lord speaks really soft when you get up there, so nobody can hear. That doesn't happen for a believer in Christ. The judgment that does happen for a believer in Christ is a, it's a reward ceremony. That's another message for another time. But if you're not a believer, the cross speaks of one thing that speaks of judgment. 
Jesus was Savior to one criminal. He was judge to the other. And in the same way, Joseph here is between two criminals. And one will hear words of salvation, and the other will hear words of judgment. And eventually the first one, the one who hears words of salvation, will ascribe that salvation and that judgment to Joseph. He will say, Joseph is the one. He's the one who saved me. He's the one who condemned the other man. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 5. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. It tells you something about the heart of Joseph here. Verse 7, he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Now, they're in prison. Hello? You're going to be chipper in prison? But Joseph is clearly a compassionate man. He sees by the looks on their faces that they're dejected. They're depressed. They're despairing. They don't understand what these dreams are about. Verse 8, they said to him, We've had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. And then Joseph said, and listen to this, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine there were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. Okay, Joseph's going to give God's interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cup bearer. Now, does something else ring a bell here related to Jesus? Three days. Three days. What else? What else? Yes. That's right. In three days he rose from the dead. Anything else? He was restored. The man was restored. What? What? When? When this man was restored, the cupbearer. What did he place in Pharaoh's hand? The cup. What does the cup speak of in Scripture? Listen to this, folks. Matthew 14:36 in the garden, Jesus cried. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Folks, the cup here is the key to this man's salvation. The cup is the key to our salvation. What cup? The cup of Jesus' suffering. The cup in Scripture it always points to, links to Jesus' suffering. Now, stay with me. I may seem out on a limb a little bit, maybe make a little guesswork here. Stay with me. Watch this. It's, it's amazing. How many times in verses 11 through 13 do you see the cup mentioned? Go ahead, add it up, look at it. How many times? How many? Keep counting. 
Let's put it together. Verse 11, now Pharaoh's cup, number one, was in my hand. So I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, number two. And I put the cup, number three, into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it, the three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup, number four, you will put his cup into his hand according to your former custom. What are you getting at, Rick? I think Frank probably knows. How many cups are celebrated at the Passover meal? Four. The Jews celebrate four cups at Passover. And the fourth cup is the cup of redemption. The fourth cup in this story is the cup that the cupbearer gives to Pharaoh as he has been redeemed from prison. Now the connection is even greater than that. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus designated the fourth cup, the cup of redemption, as his own blood. The blood of Christ, that cup that saves us, the cup of his suffering that he drank at his crucifixion, that saves us. Well, read on. Verse 14, there's more. Only keep me in mind, Joseph says. Keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of his house. This phrase, keep me in mind. In the Hebrew, it's zakar, which simply means remember me. Don't forget about me. Here I am stuck in this place, and I've given you the interpretation of this dream. Do me a kindness. Remember me. Remember me when you get out of prison, and do you recall what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? Actually, it's what the thief said to Jesus. Luke 23, 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I want you to understand that there are two primary reasons why we take communion on Sundays. Or any time that we take it. Two reasons, and the Bible is very clear about these. Number one, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is proclamation. There are churches who determine and decide never to do communion on a Sunday morning. Why? Because it's not seeker friendly. Because if someone comes in, they won't understand it. But that's the point. That's the whole reason. One of the two reasons is that it's proclamation. Someone sits there and watches the cup being passed and, and the bread and it says, well, what's the deal with this? I don't understand this. Why do you guys do this? And we have opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death, Paul says, until he comes. It's proclamation of his death. The thief said on the cross, remember me, Lord, and Jesus does. And by taking my sin on himself, the Lord got me out of prison. In the same way the cupbearer is out of prison, communion proclaims this awesome truth of salvation. But hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Look at verse 16. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream. And behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my hand. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh and the birds. The birds. Oh, the birds. <laughs> You know, I love the birds outside. They have a tendency to irritate me in the barn. The birds. They will eat your flesh off of you. I skipped ahead, didn't I? Oh, I told you the interpretation. All right. He says, the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Verse 18, Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Again. With three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree. 
And the birds will eat your flesh off you. And thus it came about on the third day. Well, hang on. Let me stop there. The baker sees these three baskets of baked breads. And here we see this baker dreaming of, of bread and completing the picture of communion. In this story, we've got the wine of the cupbearer and the bread of the baker. The bread, the wine. Communion. That all-important symbol. All-important in the Jewish Passover, but even more important, taking on the greatest possible significance in the death and crucifixion of Jesus. The cupbearer, the wine, the cup of redemption, Jesus' blood, the baker, the bread, the broken bread of Passover, Jesus' body. Now, you may wonder something. And I'm going to ask you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. You may wonder, if this is symbolic of communion, why is it that one man is saved and the other man is condemned? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Let me just read this to you. 1 Corinthians 11:23. Paul is speaking. And he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We already mentioned that. One of the reasons for, for communion, proclamation. Therefore, and see this is where we tend to stop. If, if people read this passage for communion on Sundays, they tend to stop right there. It's comforting. It's nice to hear body and blood of Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord and it sends a shiver up my spine. An unworthy manner. Is it possible that I could be sitting here innocently on a Sunday morning and taking the cup and eating the bread in an unworthy manner? Is there a way that I can offend the Lord and maybe I shouldn't take communion at all if that's the case? Well, Paul goes on verse 28. He says, A man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Interesting, Paul is connecting something here. He's saying at least at that time in Corinth, because communion is being so badly abused that there were people who were sick from it, and there were people who were dying because of it. He goes on, verse 31, But if, if we judged ourselves rightly... We would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Now you need to understand that Corinth was a mess. This church is not the picture. People who say, hey, I want to be a part of a New Testament church, <laughs> not Corinth, you don't. They had a lot of problems. And one of them was their communion had turned into a love feast slash party where the rich came in and were eating all the food ahead of time and the poor who couldn't afford were standing around going, don't we get to take a part of this, this fellowship, this communion? And things were literally out of control. But as we read this in the context of communion, what does this mean for us today? Understand this, that communion, communion 
is both redemption and judgment. It's redemption and judgment. It proclaims the Lord's death. But the Lord's death means two things. It means salvation for those who receive Him, but it means condemnation for those who reject Him. I don't know if this idea makes you a little uncomfortable with condemnation with communion. I was a, a child, not more than Hayden's age, maybe seven years old. And church was over and I went up to the front with my little friends and there was still a lot of grape juice left. And we looked around and we began chug-a-lugging all the grape juice as fast as we could. You know, drink it down. And then we're grabbing the crackers and we're just having ourselves a little party up there. A little feast. And on that morning, God struck me dead. No, but my mom did. I have never seen her move so fast. From the back end of the school where we were running for church, she came flying up the aisle. Rick, what are you doing? Give me that. I'm putting down the cup. Don't you understand what you're doing? And she was just shaking. And, and, and I was like, what, what, what? And it was my first introduction to solid legalism. <laughs> and I was very afraid. <laughs> but there is something to this. There is something to how we approach communion. That we take the time to do it seriously. Frank and I were talking the other day and he'd had a conversation with some folks who said, could we take more time in communion? Could we allow people more opportunity to pray and to really focus and center on the death and the crucifixion, the, the resurrection of Jesus? And what's going on? Can we pause a little longer? And I think right on. Because in communion, it is, it's a higher thing, folks, than just about anything we do when it comes to intimacy with the Father. It's a moment that we can share with God that, that I believe is almost closer than any other taking of the bread and, and the juice or wine symbolic of Jesus' body. It is not something to be taken lightly. Not something to fly through while you're thinking about where you're going to go for lunch after church. Not something to do real quickly while you're, you know, messing with the kids. You're not something to do wondering, you know, how long is the pastor's sermon going to be this morning? Communion is supping. It's focusing on, it's fellowshipping with the crucifixion of Jesus. We took communion after watching The Passion. Found at the Anacortes Theater. When we, we rented it out when The Passion first came out, several of us went and saw it. And it was the most somber and powerful occasion that I could bring to recent memory. Because we had just seen a representation of that brutal display of Christ's crucifixion. And that changes you. And communion is about that. It is not something to be taken lightly. It's something to be focused on and taken carefully. And again, you might say, well, man, if, if we gather the Lord's table, and if we ignore the value of the price that was paid, if we miss the essence of communion, which reminds us of the highest sacrifice... We're eating and drinking condemnation on ourselves. Maybe I shouldn't take it at all. Maybe Sundays should come and go and I should just avoid that dangerous place. And I would say to you, then you miss out on one of the precious and most powerful moments in a Christian's life. We share it every week, but if you're just eating bread and drinking wine, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Communion. It's not ritual. Hear me on this. It is not ritual. It's relational. It's not casual. It's communal. It's not incidental. It's intimate. And I advise that we keep the high cost of this powerful meal in mind when we come to the table. So here in Joseph's story, moving back to Genesis 40, 
In Joseph's story, we see salvation for one man, the cupbearer. He's going to be saved three days hence. But the baker, not so. He's going to be condemned. Damnation for him three days hence. We see bread and wine. We see salvation for one, redemption and condemnation for the other. And furthermore, now check this out, think about this, compare this to Jesus. The cupbearer is lifted up to the king's palace. He's lifted up. In the same way thief number one was in paradise, lifted up with Jesus that very day. While the baker is hung on a tree. And thief number two was hung on the tree with no hope of heaven that very day. Now, by the way, I've joked about the birds, and I mentioned on Sunday that birds tend to have a negative tone in Scripture, tend to be a picture of evil, and they do. And here is, again, another example. The man dreams of the birds, and they are picking out the bread, and Joseph says, they're going to pick your flesh. Well, there's another feast that's mentioned in Scripture. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Actually, two feasts are mentioned in that chapter. One is the marriage feast of the Lamb. The feast I most look forward to. The one that I want to be at. But the second feast is a little different. Listen to this. I'll read it to you. Revelation 19:17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. In the same way that this baker's flesh will be eaten by the birds, there is another feast coming where those who have been condemned, those who have rejected the cross, the one hope of salvation, they too will have their flesh picked at by the birds. It's, it's an ugly picture, but it's biblical. Folks, this, this amazes me because of the 300 plus illustrations tucked away in Joseph's story. And, and you can go back. There are several we're not even talking about. There are things that we've missed. And you can go back and just read Joseph's life and see Jesus all over the place. But they all picture him in powerful ways. But there's more. Verse 20. Chapter 40, verse 20. Let's see where I am. Thus it came about, and here we are, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Again, the cupbearers and the baker's dreams are realized, as you already figured out, on the third day. Another parallel. In the same way, those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ are saved on the third day. As I said before, on the third day, on the resurrection, in that moment when Jesus broke out of death. Hang on, that day we were saved. It happened then. Not now. Then. But on that same exact day, those who do not believe were condemned because they chose not to believe in that day. And Joseph nails this interpretation, but I want you to notice something else. The interpreter of dreams here is not Joseph. The interpreter of dreams is God. As Joseph said back in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. And further down, Joseph's going to say the same thing to Pharaoh, that, that it's not in me. It doesn't come from me. The interpretation comes from God. 
Joseph has the gift of interpretation of dreams. But God is the gift giver, and Joey knows it. Joseph gets that. He understands it. And my question is, do we in the church today? 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, other places in Scripture, list out, talk about the spiritual gifts. Prophecy, teaching, speaking in tongues, interpretation, administration, discernment, mercy, helps, and more. But these gifts, folks, we need to recognize and understand and know that they belong to God. Inherent in the word gift is that they are not something that comes from us, but something that is given to us by the Father. They do not speak of the righteousness of the gift bearer. They speak of the generosity of the gift giver. Jesus said this, John 5.44, He said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? How can you take these gifts that God gives, and we see it happen in the church today, and exalt yourself by the gift? I'll tell you, it borders on blasphemy. When a person takes a gift given by God and shows themselves to be so righteous because they have that particular gift that maybe nobody else has. Joseph gives complete and total credit of interpretation to God. And Jesus said, Matthew 5.16, he put it this way, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify you, lift you up, see that you're a great guy, an amazing woman. No, that's not what he says. He says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, any gift we have, however great or however simple, is for one purpose. It's to glorify God, not ourselves. It's not for us to think highly of ourselves, but for the world to bring glory to the Father. If you see someone using a gift of the Father well, credit the gift giver. Don't credit the receiver of the gift. Well, verse 23, and this is a tragic verse. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, we could read this as one of the most tragic verses, one of the most tragic acts of forgetfulness in history. The cupbearer completely forgets about, Jesus, about Joseph. He's excited. He's let out. This is great. I'm, I'm restored to my old position, my old job back. Everything's good for me. And he completely forgets about Joseph. And because of that, Joseph will spend two more years in prison. Two years because of one man's forgetfulness. Total prison time for Joseph, by the way, around a decade. Taken as a 17-year-old from his homeland, sold into slavery, rising very quickly in Potiphar's house, and then thrown into prison, where he spends his entire 20s as a prisoner in Pharaoh's house. Now, I said a moment ago there are two reasons that we take communion together. The first is to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The second is simply this. Jesus says, remember me. Don't forget me. Remember me. And what's truly tragic to me is not the cupbearer's callous forgetfulness of Joseph in prison. It's not that he forgot and left an innocent man in prison. The truly tragic event is those who have been set free from prison by the Lord, but who don't recognize the significance of remembering him in bearing the cup of communion, in the fellowship of the body. Hebrews 10.19 says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
Let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Man, Paul would say, listen, Jesus' blood got you and me out of prison. Don't forget that. Remember me, Jesus says, every time you take it. When the bread goes to your lips, when the juice goes down your throat, remember me. Think about me. Focus on me. Jesus got us out of prison. Let's not be forgetful and forsake that. Joseph is forsaken and forgotten in prison again for two more years. Chapter 41, verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. Now the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and then Pharaoh awoke. That would be disturbing. Verse 5, he fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up of seven plump and full ears. And then Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream. So the skinny cows and the skinny grain, they swallow up the fat grain and the fat cows, but they gain no weight. Very bizarre. Not sure if Hollywood could even do a good job with a story like that. We were driving along, what road is that? Best Road, coming back into Anacortes the other day. And just yesterday, wasn't it? We were coming back from picking our kids up at the airport. And we're driving along and we pulled over to stop so that Hayden could get a game out of the, the floor that he dropped. And a bunch of cows were in the field. And Hannah goes, Mom, call the cows. Say something to the cows. So we roll down the window and Cheryl goes, Hey, cows! And it was hysterical. They all looked up. And they looked at the car and they all just kind of started lumbering over. Until, I kid, kid you not, 25 cows are right at the edge of the fence just looking at it. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Now, to see those same cows, sleek and plump and fat and good-looking cows, swallowed up by gaunt, ugly, skinny cows, that would be disturbing. That'd be very odd, very strange. And Pharaoh is perplexed by this. He's upset by it. Verse 8 says, In the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and, its, and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. It's interesting. Um, a bit of ancient Egyptian history for you. There was a god in ancient Egypt named Thot. T-H-O-T. And this god was a major deity in the day, in Egypt of this time, and he was believed to give inspiration and interpretation for dreams. But all of the magicians and advisors and religious men of Pharaoh came forward, and even with the god thought, they couldn't come up with an interpretation of a dream. He was obviously a pretty thoughtless god. Verse 9. <laughs> then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Um, Pharaoh is furious with his servants. And he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. 
We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. And to each one he interpreted, he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted it for us, watch this, so it happened, he restored me in my office. But he hanged him. And I think the wording is very interesting here. Because he doesn't say, Pharaoh restored me in my office, and Pharaoh hanged him. The cupbearer is talking to, he's speaking with Pharaoh about this, but notice the wording. He says, Pharaoh, this, this Hebrew youth, he interpreted our dreams, and then he restored me to office, and he hanged the chief, cup, the, the chief baker. Well, what's the big deal with the wording? It puts the authority of the salvation and the condemnation in the hands of Joseph. That this guy looked at Joseph and said, He is the reason I was saved. He is the reason this other man was condemned. And in the same way, Jesus is the reason for salvation or condemnation. Either way, it's in the hands of Christ. He truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus. And again, what is a picture in Joseph is reality in Christ. John 19, verse 11, Jesus said to Pilate, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And what's fascinating, especially if you study the Gospel of John and read through the crucifixion account, John makes it obvious who's in charge. He makes it very clear who's the boss through that whole situation from the garden. Recall this, Jesus is standing in the garden of Gethsemane and up comes Judah, Judas and, and all of the, the Roman guards and they come along with him and they approach Jesus. And, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. Do you remember what happened? The guards, this regiment, drew back. John's showing us something here. Something that happened on that night. Jesus was in control. Powerfully. It happens a second time. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. And they fall back. Man. And all the way through, watch how Jesus orchestrates. Study it sometime. This week, if you have a chance, go to the end of John. John 17, 18, 19. Read through the crucifixion and watch how Jesus has complete control. Absolute authority, even to the very last three words on the cross, it is finished, and he died. And by the way, six hours on the cross was rare. Most people hung on the cross for three days, four days. The whole idea was a long, excruciating death that took time. But Jesus, taking our sins on himself, becoming the perfect sacrifice, he determined even the very moment of his death when he took his last breath and he said, this is it, I've done it, and he died. Amazing authority, amazing power in the hands of Jesus. Folks, Jesus, not Pilate, not a religious leader, not a pastor, elder, priest, church, or an interpreter of dreams, Jesus alone holds our future. And Jesus will judge the unrighteousness of the world. He will judge. But Rick, didn't Jesus say he came to save, not to judge? I remember reading a verse somewhere. Jesus said, I came to save the world and not to judge it. You're right. You're absolutely right. The first time. The first time Jesus came into the world, he came as a savior. He came to save, offering himself up as that sacrificial lamb that would save us. But folks, as I said before, anyone not saved at the cross will be judged 
at his second coming when Jesus is the great judge. Flip over to Joel chapter 3. The prophet Joel. Right after Hosea. Actually, it's right after... No, yeah, after Hosea. Joel chapter 3. I want you to watch something very interesting to me here as well. Beginning in verse 9. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is speaking through the prophet Joel. And listen to his words about his coming. Proclaim this among the nations... Okay, there's a prophecy concerning all nations, not a prophecy just concerning Israel or an individual nation, as often is the case. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. I have an opinion about who that is, and if you'd like to know, ask me later. (laughs) Verse 12, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Literally, the valley of Yahweh. For I will sit there to judge all the surrounding nations. Put a sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Oh, the harvest is ripe. Good. People are going to be saved, right? It's not that kind of harvest. Watch. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes. Multitudes in the valley of decision. This valley of decision, folks, it's not a valley of man's decision. That valley is long past. That valley, actually it was a hill, the cross. That is the place of man's decision. The cross is. This valley is the valley of God's decision. For the day of the Lord, verse 14, is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. This valley is mentioned one time in scripture, and it's right here, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And scholars have questioned, what is its location? Where is this valley that God apparently is going to sit in judgment of the nations? Where does this happen? Here's what I think. Not sure, can't absolutely verify this. I think this valley doesn't exist yet. What do you mean? Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 tells us the following. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half of the mountain will move toward the south. And in that writing, in that prophecy, Zechariah is talking about Jesus setting down, touch down for the Son of Man, for the great Savior. At the glorious appearing, he sets down on the Mount of Olives and Jesus, the weight of his glory, literally divides the mountain where his feet touch down and it will split. There will be topographical changes at the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem. The mount will divide out wide and in that valley 
I think, personally, that that's the valley of decision. God's decision. The point is this. For all the wonderful pictures of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, as Jesus as the gentle rabbi, the great physician, and the Savior of the world, listen to me, when He comes, He comes to judge. And if we haven't made a decision for Jesus yet, it will be too late. That moment will have passed. The valley of decision, the hill of decision, the hill of decision being the cross. Now I'm assuming that most, if not all of us here tonight, have made a decision about the cross. Or you probably wouldn't be here doing an in-depth Bible study on a Wednesday night. But I also know that among us are friends and family members and people that we love who have no decision, who haven't chosen Jesus at all, who day to day don't consider Him, don't think about Him, could care less. Their lives are what have their attention. And folks, we have opportunity to share and to tell about Jesus because the valley of decision will exist and God will decide at that point. And that's a time of decision that you don't want to be a part of. Nobody that we love should be a part of. Well, read on as this story intensifies with Joseph's exoneration. Back to verse 14 of chapter 41. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. This is interesting to me that he cleaned up. He's out of prison now in his life. He's cleaner. He's changed. He's different. He's washed. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And listen again, Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. (laughs) I can't interpret dreams. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I love the wording here that Joseph uses. It's not in me. Pharaoh, it's just not in me. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like it's just not in you? It's just not in me to get through another day. It's just not in me to deal with the stress of my life. Man, it is just not in me to talk about Jesus with someone. That's just not in me. Gang, if you are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And you need not concern yourself with the right words or the right opportunity. He will bring it. All you've got to do is open your mouth. If you are in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And that means that the struggles and stress of life, big deal. It will go by the wayside. What you're worrying about today will be gone tomorrow. Jesus even said, let the day's own trouble be enough for the day. We think so much about tomorrow and the next day and the next day and planning for the future. We've got to get it together. And oh no, Corey's 14 and in four years he's going to college and I can't afford that. Which I can't. <laughs> And I go to Scripture and go, let the day's own trouble <laughs> be enough for the day. It's not in me. It is not in me to be a righteous person. It's not in me to make it in this life. It's not in me to convince someone of Jesus. It's not in me to deal with the day-to-day stuff. But the Holy Spirit's in me. And the Holy Spirit is in Joseph. Big time. Big time. By the way, this word uh, Joseph uses when he's talking to Pharaoh, he says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I wish they didn't say favorable there, because the word is shalom. God will give Pharaoh peace. 
And it may not be in you physically to handle the world that you live in or the family struggles that you have to deal with, but the God of peace is in you. And He will bring you shalom. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. People search all over the world for peace. Don't we? <laughs> we hope to find it in vacations and locations and personal relations, self-actualization. Some pursue medic- meditations and some even pursue peace through incantations. That's all the Asians I'm going to give you. But none of it brings peace. All the things that we strive with in the world to try and find peace and it just doesn't work. But Jesus' peace is not like the peace of the world. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. So don't let your heart be troubled. Only the Lord can bring the answer of peace because it's just not in us. Well, in the next eight verses, verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh goes on. He recounts his dreams to Joseph. He says, okay, well, let me tell you the dreams. Now skip down to verse 25 because we've already read the dreams. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as, if, it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Behold, Joseph says, Seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. Verse 31. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. Now as for repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now prophecy students, take note of this. The dreams warn of seven years of unparalleled famine. What does that remind you of? A tribulation. A seven year period of time warned about in the Bible that will come at the end time. Jesus said in Matthew 24:21, Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Nothing like it will happen. Verse 22 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, that is the Jews... Those days will be cut short. Jesus, the Lord talks about it in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and Revelation 6 through 19, the largest stretch in the Bible, talks about this tribulation, this seven-year period of wrath that God will pour out on the world. It's called, interestingly enough, Jacob's Trouble. A tribulation is Jacob's trouble. Watch the parallel. In this day, the seven years of famine was so severe, so bad, that as you'll see as we study on, it forces Jacob and his children to leave Canaan and go to Egypt for help. It was a day of Jacob's trouble. It was trouble for Israel and his family. Literally, in that day, it forced the children of Jacob to go to Joseph for salvation. And in the same way, the tribulation during the last seven years will be so intense for the children of Israel, it will drive them to Jesus. 
And that's one of the reasons why there is a great tribulation. If you've ever wondered, why, why is God doing this? Why does he take out the church and then just hammer the world for seven years? What's that about? Well, part of the reason is to shake up the heathen. It's to pay back for the sins of mankind. It is to come through to fulfill his promises that his wrath will come. But it's also to wake up the Hebrews. To call the Jewish people back to God. To help them to see Him one more time. And Revelation tells us, and Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 tell us, Israel will be saved in that time. That seven year period of Jacob's trouble. But look at this. And please note this. Be aware of this. The seven years of unparalleled problems are preceded by seven years of unparalleled prosperity. My friends, the world has never seen the kind of prosperity it knows today. In the history of earth, it has never been as vast as the wealth of men on earth today. Nothing comes close to where we are. Even when the Dow dips below 10,000 and people on Wall Street are freaking out, we are filthy rich. We are so endowed with wealth, it is amazing, it's unbelievable. The fact that you and I, and at the drop of a hat, we're hungry, we just go get something to eat. We need something, just go down to the store. It doesn't matter if I have enough checks left in the checkbook or in the savings account. I just go. Put it on the car, we'll take care of it. And we do, and we continue to live, and we continue to get the new stuff and buy the new things, and we have absolute wealth. And I'm not saying that to make anybody feel guilty. I'm just saying, look at the world we live in. Not just America. The world worldwide has never been this intensely wealthy now I don't know but if the parallel holds true seven years of absolute abundance happened in Egypt Egypt being in the Bible a picture of the world seven years of abundance precede the seven years of famine and Jesus said Matthew 24 37 the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be it will come folks at a time of great prosperity what are you suggesting Rick? I'm just saying we keep our eyes peeled, our ears open, and our hearts alert that we live lives that are ready for the coming of the Lord because I believe that His coming is imminent. That His coming is soon. Well, Rick, what if the world goes on another thousand years and you're totally wrong? I'd rather live this way. I would rather live believing that He could come as soon as we close the Bible tonight, before I'm done. Some of you may wish that that would happen. I would rather live that way my whole life than to live otherwise just kind of floating day to day. Because as I said on Sunday, the very hope of Jesus coming purifies us, folks. Changes us. Focuses us. It gives us something to look forward to unlike anything else in the world. When I was a kid, I used to love going to Disneyland. But I really loved when my parents told me two weeks ahead of time. Because for two weeks it was just like, Disneyland, 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 I'm going to ride the ride, I'm going to do the thing, oh, I was going to be great. And I'd have dreams about it and everything until we finally went. And it was wonderful, that anticipation. Jesus calls us to live with anticipation in our hearts. Readiness, watchfulness, 
awareness looking for the great and glorious day that Jesus returns. And that's the way I want to live. Verse 33. Verse 33 says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man. Joseph is continuing on. He's a little bold here because he's given the interpretation of the dream. Now he's going to give Pharaoh some free advice. Let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to, to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. And then let them gather all the food for these, of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land of the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Remember a moment ago I said, I said the Holy Spirit was in Joseph. Watch this. Do you see, by the way, all the parallels here? Joseph is in place to save people from seven years of trouble. Jesus is in place right now to save people from the seven years of tribulation. Joseph, Joseph has a divine spirit. A divine spirit. Verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Divine spirit is Ruach Elohim. Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God. Joseph has the spirit of God residing within him. That's why he could interpret the dreams. That's why this man is living such a life of integrity. It's not that, oh wow, we've stumbled across a perfect man. There's one in scripture. Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus, they're the three. Joseph and Daniel had the Holy Spirit living in them. That's why they were able to do the things that they did. Joseph now is going to be given the king's full authority. And, and watch this. Read on. This is amazing to me. Verse 39. Joseph, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in, your, only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Satan tempted Jesus saying, All you got to do is bow down to me and I'll set you over all the land. I'll give it to you. And Jesus said, Take a hike, Satan. It's a paraphrase. I'm not listening to you. You know, Jesus knew what he was getting. Jesus knew all the land would be his eventually anyway. He didn't need a shortcut from Satan to get there. Verse 42, Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck and he had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Though God the Father is God, no one shall raise a hand or foot without the authority of Jesus. And the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Just like Joseph. Every knee. Verse 45, Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphenath Paniah. Zaphonath Paniah. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. That name that he gives to Joseph, Zaphonath Paniah, that people are unsure, scholars are not exactly sure what it means, but they think it means revealer of secrets. 
and reveal our secrets. This is what they called Joseph. And with Jesus, with Jesus, this is not debatable. He is the revealer of secrets. Things that were at one time mysteries are now revealed in Jesus. Paul said in Ephesians 1.8, In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. That is in Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus is the revealer of mysteries, not the bringer of new mysteries. And something that concerns me in Christianity today is that people are really tickled by the mysteries. We like the mysterious. The mystics, the Christian mystics and, and the writers who, who speak of things that are hard to understand or somewhat alluring and mystical. There were mysteries. But in Christ the mysteries have been revealed. The mystery of godliness, Jesus in the flesh. The mystery of the gospel, that there would be salvation for all people, not just Israel. Jesus is the revealer of mysteries. Things once hidden are now known. And God wants you to know, with one exception, an awesome exception. Revelation 19.12 says, He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I like that. Jesus has a name that nobody knows. Only he knows. Folks, what that makes me think of is throughout all eternity, we will never fully realize or completely understand the vastness of Jesus Christ. People say, what are we going to do in heaven? That's going to get a little boring up there. After a while, the cloud, though it may be soft, is going to get a little dull. How much harp music can you listen to? You know, flitting back and forth with our little wings may be fun, but come on, what are we really going to do? We are going to explore Jesus. And I put it to you this way, all eternity is not enough time to plumb the depths of His great soul. He has a name that no one knows but himself. And we're going to be trying to figure it out. Come on, Jesus, what's the name? You know when you have a middle name and nobody, you're not going to tell anybody? I love that. It's a fun game. Jesus has one. And we're going to be searching out the mystery of who he truly is through all of eternity. We sing a song now. I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to touch you. I want to hear your voice. I want that connection. It's a hunger that we have. And gang, it's a hunger that we will have forever. We will never fully know Christ. And yet we will know him so well. Wonderful. Verse 45 uh, says he gave him, the Pharaoh gave Joseph Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph must have looked at her and said, right on. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now On is also known as Heliopolis. It means city of the sun. And Joseph, now this is interesting, Joseph is given a Gentile bride. She's not of the family of Jacob. She's not an Israelite. She's a Gentile. She's a high priest, a pagan high priest's daughter. And she becomes bride to Joseph. Athenath, by the way, just a point of interest, literally means she who is of Nath. Nath was the Egyptian goddess of provision and protection. In Greek culture, they had another name for her. They called her Helena. In Roman culture, they called her Minerva. And you may say, so what? Well, this pagan goddess has found her way into our country. Do you know where? She resides in the pinnacle of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Minerva, Helena, now this pagan goddess, sits up on the top of our Capitol building overlooking all of D.C. It'd do us well to be aware of all the pagan symbols 
that are in our country. But listen, Joseph here is picturing Jesus. He takes this Gentile woman, and stick with me a couple more minutes, we're almost done. He makes her his bride. Jesus, wait a minute, Joseph. Joseph took a Gentile woman and made her his bride, and Jesus did the same thing. Speaking of the church, who is Gentiles. The Gentiles who have been brought in and made the bride of Christ, taken out of the world, taken out of Egypt, and out of our lostness. Now this Gentile bride bears two of the sons of Israel, sons by the name of Manasseh and Ephraim. Read on. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How old is Joseph? How old was Jesus when he came into his ministry? 30 years old. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food into the cities. And he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. And thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now, verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Athanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Manasseh means forget. Forget. You see the gentle, amazing spirit in Joseph who says, For all the trouble of my life, for all the pain and struggle and hardship and imprisonment and unjust treatment and unfairness in my life, for all the victimization that I should be able to claim, God made me forget. I'll talk about this more on Sunday, but I'll just put a plug in for you tonight. Faith begats forgetfulness. The more we believe in the Father the more we forget the things that are difficult in our lives. Well, Manasseh means forget. And then he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Fruitful. That's what Ephraim means. You've got forgetful and fruitful. These are the two sons of Joseph. Well, <laughs> in the same way, guys, that Manasseh and Ephraim are born of a Gentile bride and brought into the family of Israel... It's interesting to me, I think we see a picture of the church brought into, connected to the branch of Israel. Verse 53, we'll finish up. When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. Note that, in all the lands, not just in Egypt, in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread... And so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to, to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. And whatever he says to you, you shall do. Does anybody know who else said that exact same phrase? Flip in your Bibles to John chapter 2. Flip to John chapter 2. That's right. John chapter 2 and verse 1. I just love this stuff. This is... Okay. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day... Oh, on the third day. 
There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. (laughs) I love this because she speaks in expectation. She's raised her boy. She knows what he's capable of. They don't have any wine. And Jesus says sweetly, I think, to her woman, What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come, Ma. Give me time here. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Do it. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Pharaoh says, Go to Joseph. Whatever Joseph says to you, you shall do. And here Jesus' mother Mary says, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had now become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Interesting, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him John tells us something amazing the first miracle of Jesus was changing water to wine and in that miracle Mary says whatever he says to you do it in the story of Joseph Pharaoh says go to Joseph whatever he says to you do it Make the connection here, gang. The people of Egypt were out of bread. The people of the wedding were out of wine. And either way, you've got to go to Jesus and do as He says. The bread, the wine, what we need for peace in this world, for protection, is not John Kerry or George Bush as they're fighting it out. Who's going to really protect this country? Tell you what, who's going to really protect this country? If this country is to be protected, it will be God and God alone. If we lose that, we're in big trouble. For salvation. What we need is the bread and the wine of Christ. We need the body and blood of Jesus. Verse 56. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. But, 57, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth where was the famine severe? in all the earth and again we see a picture of the tribulation so it will be in all the earth the famine the war the bloodshed the wrath will be severe so what do I do? Pharaoh has the answer go to Jesus listen to what he says Pharaoh said Joseph Mary said Jesus go to Jesus And in these last days, the Word advises us, go to Jesus and do what He says. Let's pray. Dearest Father, Holy Lord Jesus, we come to You tonight seeking Your will. Jesus, we want to do what You say. Whether it's the popular thing or not, whether it's the thing that makes us feel good or not, Jesus, we want to be servants. We desire, like Joseph, to have your Holy Spirit residing in us, the Divine Spirit, the Ruach Elohim, 
that we like Joseph would be able to interpret the times and read the signs and understand where it is that we live. We seek, Father, that, that peace that Joseph had. That discernment, that wisdom. And we recognize in studying Joseph's life, God, that it only came because he recognized you at work in his life. And Jesus, we pray that you would be at work in us, smoothing the rough edges, cleaning out the nooks and crannies in the darkness, strengthening our faith, Father, so that we are fruitful like Ephraim and forgetful of hard times like Manasseh. And Father, may your word find a home in our hearts. And bless us as we seek to follow you, as we seek first your kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.